ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our Undoing Radio. I am your host, Jeremy Vaney, and uh, this is, uh, oh, we're, we're way over the hill on this uh, season three. We're, we're just about at the end. We're, we're two, two shows away, and that can only mean one thing, to me anyway. My lovely wife, Carol, <laughs> has joined me. Carol, welcome. Hello. Carol and I, we were going to do like a sort of a recap of um, all the episodes and what did we learn and all that sort of thing. But then I had a different idea, which I have not shared with her. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. So she's in for a treat. Uh, I want to talk about sort of um, sacred journeying or what it is like to move to a sacred place. Mm. Um, but let's uh, let's start with where you moved from. Tell us your background and your sort of childhood moving about. <laughs> Um, so I was born in Greenville, Mississippi in 1964. So oh, my age. Oh, well, people, that's my... <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to cut that out? doesn't matter. Okay. So it was uh, an interesting time. And when I was 12, my parents uh, moved to New York City. And uh, I moved there kicking and screaming, thinking that my world was Mississippi, uh, but uh, now as an adult, uh, so thankful that, n- no offense, Mississippians, but I am very thankful to have uh, been been relocated to a larger city with uh, diverse people. And I've lived there until I moved here to Hawaii. And I so I was there since 1974, until 2016, um, and I, I, you know, I so we moved to Queens uh, in 1974. Then I moved to Brooklyn uh, in the 90s, uh, early 90s, probably late 80s, early like 80s. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. 90s? Yes. <laughs> okay. Good. And and that's where I lived until 2016, and so now here I am in Hawaii. Yay! Okay. Um, so, I don't know, did, did you ever think about, uh, I mean, specifically we're talking about the sacred here on this season, as you know, did you ever think about anything like that growing up? Um, and and then, you know, as an adult in the hustle and bustle of New York, who has the time? Did you ever make time to think on issues like the sacred? You know, to me, I guess it's sort of in there with the meaning of life or what are these things that we just say uh, and then put very little pondering into generally, or some people over ponder. I don't know. Um, do you have any room for the sacred in your life growing up or in adulthood? I would say growing up. Um, no. Um, because in retrospect, I think as I was growing up, I was pretty much in survival mode. Um, I, I now know that I was very depressed as a child and very isolated and kind of um, just trying to get through my my day, you know, which is pretty sad as a six-year-old or a two-year-old or a three-year-old, just trying to get through my day. Um, and my parents were not religious at all. Uh, my mother is superstitious, which is not the same thing. Um but as far as the concept of sacred in terms of reverence for something or valuing 
you know, reverent value of something that's, that was not part of, of my life. The only thing was family and the dysfunctionality of my family in particular, um, was a secret thing. And I think in my, I, I hate to use the word sacred, but I think there is a certain, um, there is, I, I would say, I would say that my mom would consider family sacred, but she used that idea as opposed to elevating any of us. She used it to, to keep us in a certain role, you know, just kind of kept us in line. All right. Kept you obedient. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, let me ask you. So your, your mom is, uh, fairly on in her age. Yes. Um, and she is from China. Uh, she speaks a dialect of Cantonese that nobody even speaks anymore. That you, you know, or rarely, anyway. Correct. Um, I I think the general population would say yes, but somehow she finds her people. <laughs> so. Uh, so, but is there anything about her? I know that you know. Some you learn more about her as you get older, and. She seems, uh, she's an interesting character uh, in terms of what she does believe in, Mm -hmm. but also in terms of how interconnected, like on the surface, she seems to not be interconnected with anything at all, but uh, she certainly knows how to farm everything that we talk to her about (laughs) somehow, and uh, even having spent most of her adult life in New York, right, and, um, or Mississippi in New York, and she seemed to intuit that there were uh, caves in the ocean where there were caves, you know, right. lapping the shore where the ocean laps the shore down in South Point here. So uh, there is that interconnecting thing. And yet she does not seem to come from heart in any way. Uh, I think that might be an understatement, <laughs> right? So what do you make of that? Um, like just compared to, um, like the Hawaiian culture, having moved here, having moved to this island, and having seen people who are interconnecting and who do know how to work the land and work with, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I do find it interesting that when my mom came to visit, people seemed to recognize her, like in terms of, oh, I get her. Like all Willie understood her, Lehua understood her. And on one hand, a large part of it with Lehua in particular, had to do with her background because she, her mother was Chinese. Or, and um, so she got back the, where my mother was coming from culturally. Um, so I did find that interesting that the people that I really connect with here, they got my mother. And I, I've, I've always had a hard time really understanding where she came from. But I think if I pull back from my personal relationship with her and I look at her um, the way I would see another woman, an older woman, and coming. So my mother does not, or she claims, she does not speak English, <laughs> although she lived in Mississippi for decades. She seems to get everything I'm saying. Somehow. <laughs> my mother has has kept her... Uh, I guess her cultural background, uh, she's kept it very close to herself. And so I guess back to your question, I do see her 
very differently. She, I think she had a very, she did have a very, and I know this, she had a very difficult childhood. She grew up in basically poverty in China. And in World War II, she fled China to, uh, to Hong Kong. She was a refugee. But my mother does talk about, as a child, uh, I think she got to a second grade education and then she had to, she had to go work the quarries with her sister uh, to bring money um, to somehow. That's what they subsisted on. So I think there's a lot of trauma uh, that my mother still has. Uh, she actually saw a lot of her the people in her village um, murdered by uh, the Japanese soldiers when they came, and so. She still remembers those things, and she talks about them as though they just happened. And so if I, to be able to pull back and to recognize that this is a person who, who is still experiencing PTSD, you know, that's what we were calling it today, um, but at the same time, she had to live a life very close to her environment and the way you know, they, they grew crops, they subsisted off the land. And uh, recently, um, my mother was in the hospital, and we weren't sure if she was going to survive or not. And I'd gone to New York to help her. The, the hospital minister came and was trying to ask her if she had a religion, does she want to be consoled? And and my mom, through an interpreter, because I knew none of this, and I don't understand her a lot of her Chinese. I understand a lot of it, very basic things. But to get to you know her philosophy in life and what her religious beliefs were, um, it came out through this interpreter that she does have, there's an indigenous goddess that she worships or prays to, who is a protector of uh lost children, and animals. Uh, and it seems that that's where her innocence kind of lies and um, that she still sees herself as that, a lost child, but at the same time, lost children and animals. To me, that's, that's, that's significant in terms of why would those two be connected? And I think she, she feels... Um, I think she does feel very close to nature. She's very good with plants, all plants, plants that are dying. She can grow anything from anything. And I, I've always wondered about why is she so great with plants but so horrible with people and chill, like me, like kids. There are three of us, and all three of us are traumatized by my mother. And um, But, you know, I think in retrospect, as adults, we can we can kind of see, I can kind of see where she's been coming from. So it is, it's, it's a very odd. What about your dad? Uh, as far as, well, as far as, um, I mean, were there any surprises with him as far as what he believed or, uh, how interconnecting he was with nature? Cause again, we're talking about like, when you say being able to grow anything, you're talking about in a tiny backyard in a, a big city. Well, not even <laughs> just that in pots, uh, she would, bring a pot of soil from the backyard and grow a tangerine tree out of a seed, uh, a seed she gets from the store. 
So, I mean, she grew a tangerine tree. It wasn't that big, but it started bearing fruit, and she was able to eat tangerines from this seed. So, yeah, it, it's it's really things that I never thought would be possible, and there she is. She's just doing it. Um, and what about your dad? Do you know? Well, I don't really know how interconnected my dad was. My dad was 20 years older than my mom. So by the time I was born in 1964, my dad was born in like 19... I thought it was 1911. And so all these dates, by the way, the dates um, when they came, when they immigrated to this country, a lot of their actual information became made up because part of it is the language barrier. Part of it is um, the calendars don't really match. <laughs> and so, you know, like my dad's real last name was Lee, but to make it more American, he made it Fong. Uh, How'd that work out? I, yeah. <laughs> so then we became Fongs, but we really aren't Fongs. Right. Um, and even having English names, which we don't really, I mean, I have an English name because I was born in this country, but my parents, they just kind of made up names because they needed to have an English name. Right. So... Uh, so there's a lot of history that was made up. And so, so that's why I think it was 1911s when he was born, but I'm not sure. But I, I actually don't know if he had any kind of belief system. Um, I know that when he died on his hospital bed, my, my mother actually had to tell him, uh, not to be afraid, although my mother doesn't really know. Um, I mean, who of us, who among us does know, but my mother really does not have a real religious belief. Mm. But my dad did have, uh, right, like within a week or two of dying, and he was really sick, and we had to take him to the hospital, and that was the last time he was home. He did have a dream. Uh, well, he said it wasn't a dream. He said he knew he had um, a friend of his, that was long deceased, he came to visit him. And he told my mom, and my mom's like, what are you, crazy? That was a dream. And he was like, no, 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 it wasn't a dream. He came to visit me, and we sat out in the park together, and we were talking. Now, obviously, at that point, my, my father was bedridden, so there was no way he could have gone to the park. But my father, to the very end, insisted that his friend, a very close friend of the family, came to see him and they just sat and talked, which is what they always used to do. And I knew at that moment, as my mother was trying to tell him that that was just a dream, that that wasn't just a dream. And um, so I don't know what my father's belief system was, but in the end, I after that incident, because I actually, he never said any, anything about any kind of, religion, belief, or any of that, after that incident, I began to wonder, does it really matter? Hmm. Maybe that's how they live their lives. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's how they live their life. So growing up in with those parents and that, that type of family situation, um, one way to go, I guess, would be to, to want to figure out life. What is this all about? You know, it's sort of... Um, one another way to go would be to like 
I don't know, join a gang and do drugs, <laughs> right? Like, well. So for you, would you say that, would it be fair to say that, that you, it's, it's sort of promoted, um, I don't know, a seeking mentality for, for something larger or spiritual or just like, what is, what the hell is this all about? Um, I think eventually, I think initially it started with me trying to understand why I was so unhappy because I think that I carried a lot of that trauma with me into adult life, uh, especially into early adult life. And uh, I, I realized how depressed I was at one point and that I needed to either seek help or just wait to die. And I, I did have a sense that there was something greater, and I did have a sense that I didn't have, well, I mean, I don't know where this comes from, you know, because it's a Christianity, which I'm, I wasn't really Christian. I mean, my parents did force us to go to the First Baptist Church because that gave them the ability to nap during <laughs> on Sundays, <laughs> but uh, they weren't telling us to believe that, and in fact... When the First Baptist Church pulled me aside and found out from their records that I was never baptized, they pulled me aside and the pre the minister uh, said, um, "You got to go tell your mother that you're going to go to hell if you die unless you get baptized. You got to tell her. You got to tell them. You got to get baptized." So I ran home. I was scared to death. I ran home. Told my mom, and my mom said, which I have to say is pretty progressive of her, now that I think about it, or lazy. <laughs> um, you tell that priest, uh, or the minister, whoever he was, it, it had to be a minister because Baptist, um, that we don't believe that, that, you know, if you're, when you're old enough, you can make that choice yourself, but we don't believe that. So, as I don't know how old I was, I think I was probably seven or eight. <laughs> I, had, I was supposed to go tell this minister that we don't believe in this. I mean, come on. Uh, I don't really know how I handled it, but I think I kind of somehow avoided needing to do anything about it. But uh, so I, I did... I don't know. I mean, maybe there was this fear that was invoked, you know, stoked in me about there the greater being. But I, I did always feel like there was something greater. Now, was it God? Was it something? I don't know. I, I never knew. But I felt that there was something else and that I knew. But um, so in that way, I never felt that it was my right to commit suicide or something like that. But I, I always thought, you know what, if I'm going to be here, why don't I try to find out what this therapy stuff is about? And, and I had insurance, and I could try it out. So that's it just started first with trying to heal myself. And so it never was about anything beyond, I, I just don't want to feel this way anymore. Uh, or is it possible not to feel this way anymore? I think that's really what it was. Is it even possible to not feel this way anymore? And that's interesting. I wonder could could you even get to the bigger questions of that are beyond psychology if you don't deal with your own psychology first? Because I I think like as a kid, I mean, psychology going to a shrink was always forced on me. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, we're divorced. 
you were molested, so clearly you need to go to shrink. Oh, your father turns out as an alcoholic. You need to go to alcoholic anonymous meetings for the rest of your life and go, go to a therapist, go to a therapist. Our family was big on go to a therapist. And, but my head space was always um, like, yeah, no, that stuff's, you know, you got to deal with that, but there's something else. You know, it's always the tug of the greater mystery was always there. And when I look at uh, a lot of people, I don't know if it's most, but a lot of people who skip the psychology and go straight to the greater mystery, they tend to be screwed up. They tend to be, they, they use that as a cover um, to repress their, their psychological issues. Mm-hmm. I guess I had the, the fortune or whatever of figuring out and then being able to backtrack working on the psychology later in life. But you, you, so you worked on yourself first. So you did it in, in the right order. <laughs> by accident because yeah. I really wasn't seeking anything beyond I just I wasn't seeking anything beyond at least having happier moments than than not happy moments in my life and yeah it, it's I think I don't know it seems so interconnected now in, in retrospect where the self-healing does from my perspective does lead to greater and greater connection in general. So connection to yourself as an individual, the the true person that you are, to greater connection to the world around you, greater connection to the people around you, greater connection to everything around around me, at least. I, I maybe I should just talk for myself. And so um you know and that and that led me and I you know, you and I've had this discussion how you know at least from my perspective i feel like unless i go inwards i can't go outwards unless i go within myself and brutally honest with my stuff um and i feel it i feel it when i'm blocked i feel it when you know when i have anxiety or worries that are actually deeper issues it i can feel the block between me and the rest of this world between me and you know my relationships with people and 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 I think that interconnectedness is really I think for at least for me the the path to the greater of me really it's hmm. interesting is, I wonder if like that's you know if if uh, coming from a heart culture if one way to put it would be that there's this the interconnecting nature between all people and and nature um, the hypersensitivity of that. I wonder if you developed a hypersensitivity between, you know, going inward between your own psychology and your physical, physical body. I don't know chicken or egg, <laughs> uh, because I was probably hypersensitive even as a child, but it was because of all this trauma, like all this like stuff coming at me. I, I was always a crier. I was always, you know, the one who just just took it all on and uh and who knows maybe my other siblings did you know my younger brother and my older sister and maybe they just deal with it in a different way yeah i mean what if like everybody has this what i'm calling hypersensitivity but really it's that whatever that is that if we were if we were psychologically and emotionally well (laughs) uh it would be a natural flow well and we would be connecting with nature and, and all that in mother earth and um, but because we don't do that, it comes out 
this hypersensitivity comes out in different ways. You know, it has to I, attach to something else. Yeah, I'm. Uh, when well, you're saying that, and this is kind of what I was thinking about earlier, and I just forgot to say, I'm wondering if that's what my mother's situation is. Hmm. That, in fact, she is very connected, but because of her trauma, she has to cut off. She can't handle real human contact. Like, she, she can only handle so much of it. It's like a cat. You know, when you're petting them, petting them, and then suddenly they ah, they turn around and bite you um, because they can't take that stimulation so much. And I don't know. So I, I, I do, you know, I just don't know if, um, in fact, my mother, maybe she was. And I think it's interesting. My dad, all the animals loved him. Every freaking animal that came in our house or, you know, wherever he came in contact with an animal, they loved him. And I always saw that as just part of his gentle nature. But, you know, when animals that don't really know you love you, uh, I think it could be something else. I mean, or yeah. maybe they sense that, but there's something else going on there. And I don't know who said this to me once, but someone mentioned something about my dad who knew him before um, he had me, you know, or, you know, this, my family had me. They said that when he was younger... Uh, they kind of were alluding to the fact that he might have been had certain gifts or psychic, you mm. know, not psychic as in the future. He could, you know, he couldn't predict the future, but that he had he was able to connect uh, with beings, you know, people, animals. Mm. Like people couldn't, you know, he just people loved him. Mm. You know, who's to say? Who's to say? You know, is it hypersensitivity or is it just our true natures? that need to be cut off in certain places. But little by little, you know, in certain areas, we can let that open and be safe. My mom can be safe around plants. Right. My mom can be safe around, uh, you know, when she's in, in the land. She doesn't like animals that much. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on that. So, okay, let's cut to now you move to Hawaii, which has an emphasis on the sacred, has an emphasis on coming from heart, um, has more of an emphasis on, in, you know, in this balance between indigenous nature, culture, and westernized culture. Um, what is that like for you? Does that, does that spark anything in you? Um, I feel like here, this is closer to my true nature. Uh, I think, Growing up, being in New York City, it was hard to have my heart open. It was hard to be um, an open, just someone who is willing to extend themselves to to the people. And uh, as a young child, I think I was like that. And my mom would just, you know, come down on me over and over again. How stupid. She would call me stupid. And, uh, you know, but... My sister, who is wily and, you know, able to navigate kind of this um, this kind of crafty world of people who would might take advantage of you. But I would be taken advantage of all the time. That's what my mom would constantly say. You're going to be taken advantage of. You've got to stop. You've got to stop. You're just stupid. You gotta, and I think she was saying stupid. Well, stupid in the word that she used is a Chinese word, which probably means I'm naive. Mm. I'm not crafty like my sister i'm not wily um but here i think coming here it feels like i can actually be myself uh 
And I think when I, as far as being in New York, I think initially I definitely could not be like that because, you know, that's, that's a place that is pretty harsh. Um, but as I got stronger in myself and more healed, I began to be more and more myself and people really couldn't affect me the way they used to. And I began to notice the people that uh, were around me, I obviously would have a certain kind of person around me uh, as opposed to letting just anybody around me. Uh, But even the people that you would not necessarily let near you would leave me alone because I think I became more and more me. And I think, you know, not not in a in a um, non-discerning, completely gullible to every little thing, just because I want to be nice kind of way. No, I can be truly me, still have my boundaries, still have the discernment to know uh, who I want in my life and who I don't. And so I was getting that more and more in New York as I was getting more and more healed. But then when I came to Hawaii, it was almost like, wow, it felt like home. It really did feel like that this was a place that I could actually call home. Would you consider that that feeling or that bond sacred? The bond between... Well, you and the place or you and the, you know, all of this, whatever this Hawaii experience is. I guess so. I think... It's so hard because I I know when we talked about doing this, uh oh, <laughs> I think I bond with Oscar sacred, our sacred cat. <laughs> um, I think when we first talked about talked about doing this podcast, I was thinking uh, I don't really know what's sacred. I mean, I know it, like you know it when you see it. It's like love. Well, when you when you hear like uh, Lahua or Willie or Kaoni or even Tiokasin or. I mean, you've listened to a lot of these shows and you've talked to a lot of these, you know, you talked to all of these people in real life, <laughs> in, in unrecorded yes, life. Yes, yeah. Does that inform your sense of the sacred? I mean, do you, do you treat conversations like that with people like those as if it's like watching a nature show or watching the Discovery Channel or something where it's this completely other mind uh, being explained to you and it's you're taking it in like, hmm, that's interesting. Or do you connect with it in the same way that you connect with like when you said moving to Hawaii feels like coming home. Do talking to does talking to people from home feel like talking to family when you hear them talking about sacred? I mean, does it sort of make sense that way of just by by way of feeling as opposed to by way of even thinking about the sacred? Yeah, um, I do. Well, like for instance, um, I think Lehua's show uh, in which she talked about the sacred. I guess I. I do consider it more of a feeling. So yes, like Kaoni's show, Willie's uh, talk, uh, and, and do you see talk. the difference between that and like white people? <laughs> like the thinking about the sacred, the explaining the sacred uh, from the westernized white guy, or like you know, in terms of us dealing with tea. And I'm a white guy. Just I, I think everyone knows this, but just <laughs> just so I can you know get the you're a racist or whatever off. Uh, no, there's this difference. This westernized to me anyway. Um, the thought process and it doesn't have to be white men, right. but it is of a patriarchal. Uh, it, I mean, this is just where it comes from, and men, women, and all races in this mind are affected by it. Right. But this is just the origin point. So, and the mind is 
thought. Everything must be rational. Everything must be um, separate from you and you observing it and figuring it out in that way, as opposed to you're in it. This is the experience. Everything is alive. There is no it's alive. There is only living. Right. And all of these aspects are living and you're one of them. Um, so it, it seems, it seems odd to me when people come here with that former sense of the world and want to keep it <laughs> somehow, yeah. somehow want to stay here and want to keep that, that I have a hard time with. But anyway, the question is then, is it an intellectual curiosity, um, or, or is it more? Does it, I think certain people I connected with more than others, uh, I, I connected with Kaoni cause I, I get what he's saying. I mean, you, and, hearing how he's committed his life to this and has actually given up so much, you know, for this mission that he has to protect the land. Um, So for me, I do think that the sacred is more of a feeling. And maybe that comes from the fact that I don't have this religious background and I don't really connect with that that much because I'm, I'm not a ritualistic kind of person. I don't have ritual and I, and to me, I don't feel like I need ritual to connect with something or to make meaning out of something like that. I also wonder if um, if I can fully understand what our friends, uh, Lehua, Willie, uh, Keone, Tiokasen, what they mean by ritual, ceremony, sacred. Because I did grow up in this Western mindset. I was born here and my adult life, I've lived and worked in New York City. I have been fully indoctrinated into that mindset. I get a sense of not, I get glimpses, I guess I should say, of what not being in that mindset feels like, but I get glimpses of it. So while I'm I'm attempting to explain or or uh, understand you know verbally what I think these concepts are and how they relate to my life and whether or not i I even understand what sacred is in this case i I suspect that I have a much more superficial understanding of it because uh, I am not completely immersed as much as I'm living here in Hawaii and touching on it i'm not fully in it and i know that i'm not living this purposeful life that i was was born to live and um i still struggle with that mindset and the anxieties that come with that mindset so i just wanted to i just i feel in many ways that while we can talk about what, what I feel is sacred, I, I do feel it pales in comparison to what what it means um, to people who live it. We've been up to the mountain when, you know, the great masters in Kahuna are, are doing the ceremonies. Right. And uh, do you, did you feel anything from that? It, yes, it was on. It was awe inspiring. Um, and I guess that's where, and then how Willie had said, you know, that the mountain's not sacred. You know, it's it's you. Right. You are the sacred. And so, I don't know. I, I, I the, It does. It twists. It, there's a lot of twisting on its head of, of things that I kind of just, in my own feeling of it, 
uh, I'm like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And I think, you know, does sacred need us to exist? You know, because something, when I go to that mountain, when I see the mountain, I'm thinking that mountain, you know, does not need me. <laughs> that mountain doesn't need me at all. And I, that to me seems very clear to be this. Well, and I think, well, who made that clear too, which was yeah. that, you, you know, you're not there to do anything for the mountain. You're there to ask, can I, can I <laughs> yeah. for myself? And then there seems to be this sort of, or for us, and then there seems to be this sort of bond and interconnecting thing that builds relationship that builds that way. It seems to me. Um, and, and all of these things are compatible, you know, like I see Willie's contention or uh, understanding, I guess I should say compatible with Lahua compatible with Kyokusen. Um The only thing I find incompatible are, are people like me, <laughs> not like me, but you know, people who look like me. Uh, who say things that, mm. you know, to invoke the word sacred, they don't really know what they're saying. Uh, and I think you just sort of pinpointed it, which is the question is, does the sacred exist in thought? Does the sacred come from the limitations of the brain and of thought? Or is the sacred, this perfume, this living existence that, you know, we almost waft into or in and out of, or that, that also comes from us, you know, it's all of the above. Um, is it its own thing? Does it transcend and include us or does it come from us? And I think Westernized mind believes everything comes from us. Right. And if it doesn't, we'll figure it out. So if you find yourself more at home in a culture that, that, uh, understands the transcending and including piece of life, I guess in the Hollywood version of, of you, you would suddenly want to know more about your roots and go back to that little village in China and magically you would know Cantonese because it, <laughs> it would be a racist Hollywood film. And Kung Fu. Yeah, and Kung Fu. Yeah. Um, but is, is I'm there... sorry, people. <laughs> uh, it's, one of my, it's one of my sticklers. <laughs> yeah, Chinese <laughs> people, they all know Kung Fu. Um, but magically... Right. Uh, but is there any part of you that wishes that you did identify with your own culture or even or even with your own mom in in this other way? Um, I think I think in a way, what do you mean? Like with my own mom? Uh, like, do you wish you could have conversations with her about transcendence, about things that are bigger and broader than? The world i think i would like to know uh except that i don't know she asked me uh i don't know i i guess i was in it was after my dad died she asked me do you think that there's something more and i said yeah i do and she said well how do you know and i said i just do so she was asking me i think i think I wish I could give my mom at least a glimpse of that greater thing. Although I think she sees it a lot, you know, with the growing of the plants and down in South Point. I think she's she gets it, but she doesn't get it. I think that's the part that's so hard for me, that she clearly can ascertain that there is something going on, but she has no real, she'll just say, because I've asked her, you know, I've asked her, how did you know that there were caves in South Point? 
because none of us talked about it. None of us could even, you know, I can't see that. And she said, I just can see it from the water. I can tell. But she doesn't go beyond that. She doesn't tell me how she can tell. Hmm. And, and she'll say other things, like with the growing of the plants. When everything I plant dies, and I'll ask her for tips, well, you just do it, she'll say. You know, she'll just, no, you just, you just do it. Just look at it and do it. And so, I mean, I don't know, maybe a, a person who has a green thumb, like, yeah, yeah, we get what she's saying. But for me, that's, that's just like magic. <laughs> like, like, how in the world? Coming here to Hawaii, she's never been to Hawaii. And yet she'll go through and she'll see certain plants. She goes, oh, that's edible. That's not edible. Now, maybe it's plants that she's been exposed to in the past. But then if I... Like, you know, if I ask her about certain things, she goes, no, I've never seen that before, but I can tell it's edible and it's not edible. Hmm. So how do you know that? I mean, it's like our, our ducks, right? How they're out there <laughs> foraging, eating weeds and all this stuff. Half the time, I'm so scared they're going to eat something poisonous. But everything I read says they're very good at telling what's right. good for them and what's not. Hmm. And so there is my mom... Your mom runs on instinct. It's very instinctual. <laughs> well, let me ask you because you said you don't need you don't need ritual. But when we talked about the mountain, you said you did get that get a feeling from um, ceremonies up there and rituals and ceremonies. I mean, apparently they're different. I learned this from oh. Teokasin. Um, but l- l- let's. Well, let me just ask you: Could you get that feeling without that? Without having been a part of that? No, I think seeing the mountain, if I had just gone to the mountain without all those people there, without all of them doing it, I think it's a completely different experience. But when you see the dances and the, and the chanting and all of that in homage to the, to the mountain, you see that interconnectedness that they have. Like, I don't really have that kind of connection with the mountain because obviously I'm not Hawaiian. My history is elsewhere but to have people whose generations of people and their generations in their family dancing the dances and the ch- and chanting the chants that you know their their families have chanted and danced for generations and seeing that their interconnectedness that's a whole different experience because I, I get that that's. That's not an experience that I can necessarily have. It's just, it's not, it's not mine. But to be able to be honored to witness that um, is a great honor. And yet you can, you, I, I just get that that's a whole different connection. Than Do you I get a feeling have. from the mountain itself or from any places uh, on this island or anywhere you've been in the world um, where you thought, yeah, that's, that, that has some sacred feeling to it? Oh, the mountain itself, just seeing the mountain itself. I think when we came to our property, it's a different... See, this is the thing. Places have different feelings, but it's not It's not less sacred, I think. Some are hit you over the head. I am... Like the difference between alive and sentient, right? Yes. <laughs> that's the thing, right? I think that's really what it is. It's, I think that's why... Even when the animals that we have and, you know, people say we spoil them, this and that. But the truth is they are alive and sentient. You know, you don't 
do anything to try to harm harm that and and maybe it's not the same thing as you know people who actually hold ceremony at the mountain i don't really i i i think what it is i don't really get fully and i don't pretend to get fully what uh the protectors are have going on with the mountain i only know from my perspective this is a place that's alive and sentient like you said and you shouldn't try to do anything to affect that because i don't know if, if we can actually hurt it the way we right. think we can hurt things uh but for sure you leave it alone right well uh let me just ask you one more question so in in terms of how teokasin explains ceremony um it sounds like ceremony it sounds a lot like how the kogi talk about original instruction you know that that mm -hmm. um well it's whatever you're here to do right <laughs> becomes the ceremony so a butter he gave the example of a butterfly flying over a taxi cab and the butterfly is completely oblivious to the pollution and the cab and the noise and the people and it, the butterfly is doing what the what the butterfly does and that's ceremony um and i know that uh ceremony and dance and song tend to come from the land tend to come from visions and things like this so do you think ceremony is necessary in life uh and that if we're a culture that doesn't have ceremony then we can't be interconnecting with nature in the way that that a society must to sort of be in balance and thrive. I, mm. I guess I'm trying to get a sense of when you say I don't need this. Well, what ritual. Is it that, do we do we need it or do we not need it? You yeah, know? I don't know. I don't think I need ritual. Uh, but I guess the sense that ceremony, the sense of ceremony, the Teokasin, that's a whole different. I think in a way that's what what we're trying to do here on this land that somehow we are connected somehow we got a connection to this land the minute we got here um, this property you know we knew we want to be here and we felt we had to do certain things we weren't sure why but we felt we had to do certain things here like you know our workshop and all that our renovations and certain things um i mean practically i think any any person with common sense right would say that's ridiculous why would you spend that kind of money doing that there uh and what are you going to do with it and so i think we were kind of compelled so is that is that what teokasin like we have a certain i think there is some reason why we're here and i don't know why I think there's some connection that we have that keeps us putting one foot in front of the other or standing still and waiting for the next impetus to put the, the foot in right. that direction. Is that ceremony? Would that be considered ceremony somewhat? Like we're just kind of doing, we have this interconnection and we're, you know, I mean, I, cause I, I guess, as a as a westernized mind myself uh and now uh, now living definitely a different life than what i was living before but it's still also progressing i'm i'm i don't know where this is where i'm going to end up i don't know 
what I'm supposed to be really doing here, but I'm putting one foot in front of the other as things reveal themselves. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's what Chiyokusen would call ceremony in terms of my little way of doing ceremony. I'm just compelled to do certain things, and that's why you just got to do it. And um, so I, I, if that's what what is ceremony, if that's what that is, I can only speak for myself. I think if I didn't do it, and that's the same thing with coming here to Hawaii in, in the first place, if I didn't do it, I don't know what what I would be doing. I don't know what my life would be like, ex- except that, you know, if I'd stayed in New York, uh, I do know my health was starting to get affected by being in New York and living that life, uh, living on that land uh, that was chronic stress, chronic um, stimulation, uh, never any quiet. The sad thing is never having space to to really be yourself. It was a pathless life in many ways. It was about making money. You know, acquiring security in terms of financial security, but ultimately it was a pathless life. And so here I do feel there is a path or many paths, you know, or maybe a short path this way, and then you got to make a turn because now the path goes this way. And so I think ceremony, if that's what it is, is what gives you path or gives you a direction or gives you purpose.